When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He looks determined without being ruthless. Something heroic in his manner. There's a courage about him. Doesn't look like a killer. Comes across so calm. Acts like he has a dream. Full of passion. You don't trust me, huh? Well, you know why. I do. We're not supposed to trust anyone in our profession anyway. Peace, 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 and welcome to The Rematch, which is part of the BasketballNews.com podcast network. On The Rematch, you'll hear in-depth interviews with notable names from all walks of life. Because sometimes the media just doesn't get it right. The Rematch is that second opportunity to clarify, put things in proper context, correct fake news or misreported controversy. The media still exists as the most powerful entity on earth because they control the minds of the masses. I'm Atan Thomas, and the full truth is what we are aiming to catch. Many media stories omit details that would dilute their clickbait roar, and that's why there's a need for the rematch. I sat down with 15-year, two-time All-Star NBA vet Luau Dang. We started off at his journey from being a Sudanese refugee to Duke University to NBA star. He addressed what happened with the Lakers, being misdiagnosed with the Bulls, going toe-to-toe with Kobe, and the work he is now doing in Africa. This was a great discussion. Hope you enjoy. Mr. Luau Dang, how you doing, sir? I'm great, man. I'm great. How are you? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I appreciate you coming on the rematch, um, basketballnews.com, Fly TV. Um, you played 15 years in the NBA and a two-time NBA All-Star. You've had an amazing career, but I want to I want to go back. I want to go back to the beginning, um, if that's all right with you. Um, I want to talk about the process that you had to go through to even get to the United States. Um, you know, I, I'm out friends with uh, teammates with Quest Duaney. So I, I learned a, a lot about the um, the Sudanese uh, Civil War and everything like that. So I know a lot about his story, his families, and the Lost Boys and everything like that. So I want you to explain to the audience everything you had to go through because um, you were a refugee and you were fleeing to Egypt. But tell, tell, tell the story to let our um, audience know everything you went through. Yeah, no, definitely for sure. I think uh, you know you got it right. It's uh, South Sudan just got their independence um, in 2011, which is uh, you know something amazing for what you said. It's, it's been so many years of civil war uh, between you know the whole country it used to be Sudan, uh, now we're South Sudan. So at the time I was born in Sudan, uh, which is South Sudan now, um, because of the civil war. Uh, my family fled to Egypt, uh, became a refugee in Egypt, uh, grew up in Egypt, spent about five years in Egypt, 
Um, obviously, the process, which a lot of people, you know, during the Trump administration, a lot of people didn't understand. There's a lot of uh, false information being passed around. When you're a refugee, uh, you pretty much apply for political asylum. Uh, what that means is it's just you, you basically, you're trying to improve your life and you're trying to get out of the situation you're getting out of uh, that you're in uh, to end up in a better situation. So you apply to all these countries and all these government and all these NGOs kind of pass your family's information. Uh, you then sit back as a refugee and you wait until you're called upon. Obviously, there's a number of people that are trying to, you know, better their lives also. Mm-hmm. So that's how long it took the process for us in Egypt. Uh, uh, when we got the political asylum, uh, my family was chosen to go to the UK, uh, which that's where I grew up. Uh, that's where my family lives now between the UK and Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ended up in uh, in London uh, with my family. I lived in London. Well, before I, I was in London till I was 10. Uh, I mean, I, I got to London when I was 10 years old. Um, when I was 14, I came to the U.S. Uh, for a high school scholarship uh, to play the game of basketball. And four years at Blair Academy in New Jersey, I went to Duke University. Um, then I was at Duke for one year, and then I was drafted by the Chicago Bulls. Um, I know it sounds, you know, I, I kind of washed it down a little bit to just try to get through the story. Uh, I could share other information uh or what we went through and everything, but that's pretty much the story. That's the route that I took uh, to get to the NBA. And, you know, here in the States, people don't really understand. I want to back up a little bit um, what it means to be a refugee. And, and you know, we just had a situation here in the States where um, Haitian refugees were being turned away and they were being treated very brutally. Um, you know, there was an image with a, um, a Texas Ranger on a horse with what, what appeared to be a whip. It was like a whip-like instrument. I don't know, it was like the horse's reins, but he was using it as a whip. Mm-hmm. And just the the inhumanity, um, you know, of treatment. And a lot of, it raised a lot of eyebrows because it's what we expected from the last administration, not from this administration. What was, what was your reaction to seeing that? I think, you know, what's happening in the world now, and especially here in the United States, uh, that's been going on for years. Uh, that's not the first time. I think, you know, for me, being on the other side or, you know, growing up being on the other side, I know as a refugee, uh, every information that you have is that, that life is better on the other side. Uh, that's all you know. That's that's all that's really being advertised. If, if you really look of, you know, advertising and how that goes, uh, who controls the narrative, uh, for a long, long time, even till now, a lot of things about Africa have been negative. A lot of things about developing countries have been negative. Right. Uh, it's almost like you take away what's positive and you just keep feeding people what's negative. In, in the news is what's negative. Now, the other way around, you know, the U.S. and European countries, we see them on TV in Africa and the narrative is controlled by the Western world. So everything we see is positive. But now you're struggling and you're going through all this and you're trying to, you know, as a man or as a mother, uh, as a father or as a mother, you're trying to better the life of your kids for the future. So you take the sacrifice and you do whatever it takes, whether it's you getting there to get a job or whether it's you getting your family there to get an opportunity like my family did for me to get an opportunity. You do whatever it takes to get there because that's all you know. Um, but what's happening now, we've always known that. But what's happening in the U.S., 
the narrative was always controlled so people didn't see it. And just because of the development of technology and people could just take out their phone now and record all these things, people are starting to realize that, you know, this is not just uh, in Italy or in France or in Greece. This is happening also in the borders of the United States. And, you know, people are starting to speak up about it now. And there's no other nation in the world that has as much freedom of speaking up as the U.S. And this is why it's becoming a topic and people are starting to talk about it. But, you know, it's, it's been going on for years. So for me, when I saw it, obviously it's something that, you know, even no matter how many times you've seen it, uh, it's still really hard to digest it when you see it that, you know, you still not understanding why humans are doing that, why you're the one pointing out their narrative and people are struggling. What 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 do you think they're gonna do? So, you know, for me it's, it's something that I knew has always been going on, but I you know, I was glad that people get to see it and, you know, speak up about it and do something about it. You know, one of the things that's troublesome is that it seems like certain refugees are welcomed with open arms and other refugees aren't. And they're usually the darker the skin the more you're turned away. Um, you don't have to, you know, make a statement to that, but that's just what what, what I see. Um, you know, just, just to talk a little bit about that, it's not just the refugees. Uh, if you ask anyone from, you know, people like to call it uh, develop. I like to call it developing countries. People mm -hmm. say, I don't like the third world narrative, but if if you ask people from there, it's it's difficult to get a visa uh, to come to the U.S. It's difficult to get a visa to certain countries. While there's certain countries that you can hold their passport, and it's very easy to get the visa. So it's the same thing, uh, you know, with the refugees coming in. It's not something new. That's that's being done systematically for years. You know, I remember watching my teammate while I was in Syracuse, Quef, um, study for the tests, and I was like. No Americans know all of this. You know what I mean? Let's, why you got to know all of this? No Americans know everything that they're asking you. I just thought that was so, yeah. was so crazy. But so, all right. So you were you were um, you were mentored when you were young by Manute Bow. I want to hear about that that story. Um, he was such a people talk about him with such warming warm descriptions, and that he's such a you know great guy. Tell me about the mentoring he did for you. Yeah, Manute is special, man. I learned a lot from Manute. I think. You know, when we were refugees in Egypt, um, we used to get together as a community, uh, the South Sudanese community. And there's a, a church that we used to go to. Uh, we all used to, it's the only basketball court at the time. I grew up in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, and it was the only court that's there. So everyone would get together. And it wasn't so much just for basketball. We would just all get together as a community. So all the guys, uh, my older brothers and their friends, they would start playing basketball, but they did not know the rules to the game. Uh, they would just run around. They had, you know, basketball and hoops uh, and they would just, you know, waste time and just, you know, play around like just kids having fun. Uh, Manute uh, took a vacation to Egypt while he was in the NBA. And this really speaks to, you know, who Manute Bol is. Um, he took a, a vacation to Egypt that was supposed to be a week uh, during the summer. You know how it is with the NBA season. You're trying to take your family for a break and come back. So right. Manu, goes, Manu goes to Egypt and he finds out about this large South Sudanese community uh, with a lot of young South Sudanese kids that are just in the street with nothing to do. Uh, so Manu turned his vacation from one month to almost two months. Um, and just dedicated the whole summer into teaching um, this group of kids how to play basketball. 
Mm. At the time, I was very young, uh, but my brothers were playing and I was watching. Uh, we would just come to the side and watch just to see Manute. Uh, Manute was a legend for us. And every time Manute came around, the whole community came out. Um, so every time Manute showed up, everybody showed up. So Manute was on the court teaching guys how to, you know, dribble, lay up, what a dribble, uh, double dribble is, how to shoot, not to sh just throw the ball up there. Mm -hmm. And my brother took that to heart. And my oldest brother really kind of just every day, he would just absorb everything Manute was teaching. And when Manute came back to the NBA, my brother had me on the court every day doing all these drills that Manute was teaching him. And he thought, you know, this is what basketball is. This is how you become good at basketball. So my brother knows that he's a bit older. He looked at it as, you know, maybe I have an opportunity one day if we get this political asylum and go over to the uh, to the Western world that I could get to, um, I could get an opportunity that they didn't get. Mm. And that's how really it started. And, it, you know, he had a vision and he believed in it, but it really started with Manute. And, you know, when I came over to the to the US or even when I came over to the UK, my brother was drilling me so much with all these drills that I was actually way better than kids in the UK. Uh, and that's how I got a scholarship to come to the US. And when I came to the US, uh, you know, he was drilling me so much. I mean, I was getting up every day. I was, you know, he had this thing where before I even touched the basketball, I had to run 40 laps in the uh -huh. heat. Uh, and this, you know, with all that running uh, 40 laps every day, dribbling for 45 minutes, left-hand shot, right-hand shot. Nobody was doing that at seven or eight years old. So, right. you know, and when I got to the NBA, my strength was running. So it, it really kind of just became, I knew that basketball just, I had to be in the best shape ever. And that was because that's what my brother thought that, that you know, so all that, all that stuff that he was doing and it all started with Manute, but it all came back, you know, and that's what really, kind of gave me an advantage of being better than kids uh, my age. So so in the league in, in the league that you played in in London, um, you were averaging like 40. <laughs> Wait, what? Hey, I was 40 and you're like 12. Like, so <laughs> how, how did that happen? <laughs> you know, that's what I'm saying with my training. When I came over, you know, I always wanted to be a soccer player. Um, yeah. uh, soccer was number one for me. And I, I, you know, to start with, even when my brother was teaching me basketball, I just, basketball wasn't that popular uh, in Egypt. Uh, it was really, soccer was everything. And when I went to the UK, soccer was everything. So I remember, you know, joining Brixton Topcats, the club that I grew, uh, I mean, Brixton is where I grew up, but Brixton Topcats is where we played. Mm -hmm. And I was way better than everybody. Um, and at the time I didn't even know, because when I was in Egypt, I just, I was just working, you know, my brother was just working me out. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really play team sports until, I went to, to Egypt and uh, I mean, I went to England mm -hmm. and like you said, you know, when I started playing with my age group, I was way better than them. So they started uh, making me play with the older guys at 12. I was, you know, playing point guard for the men's team. Uh, uh, and that's really, you know, that's really how I became uh, in love with basketball. I didn't know I was good at it to begin. I didn't go to England thinking that I'm going to be a basketball player. I really wanted to be a soccer player. And you was averaging 40 against the men's team? No, no, no. This is oh. when I played. Yeah, this is when I played with my age group. Against the, okay. Men's, okay, okay. Against the men's team, I, I held my own, but I wasn't. You were 40. <laughs> yeah, I held my own, but it wasn't. That's cool. So, so Blair Academy um, in Jersey, your teammates with Charlie Villanueva 
And, you know, coming out of high school, you were right under LeBron, like in that in that high school 2003 class. Uh, you know, LeBron was number one. You were number two in all the consensus. Um, you know, talk about your development and what that process was like. I mean, because LeBron was bigger than than than, than everything, but you were right there. You were right there with him. Yeah. Now, it, it was amazing, man. I mean, it goes back to what we're talking about. I really, you know, when I came over to the U.S., um, one, this, uh, like I was telling you uh, uh, earlier, we hear everything about the U.S., uh, especially when it came to basketball, uh, following the NBA, you follow college, you follow high school stars. Um, and, you know, there was this almost uh, a mindset of maybe we're not that good or maybe they're just too good for us to, to even, you know, be able to compete with them. So when I came over to the U.S., uh, I had no idea, you know, how high school was going to be. Uh, and I remember coming over and I remember my first practice with the team at Blair Academy. And I actually went back to, to my dorm. And I said, you know what? I'm better than them. You know, I'm better than uh, than most of these guys. But uh-huh. For me, I came in thinking that, you know, it's going to take years for me. If I if I end up getting a scholarship, that would be great. You know, and I remember my high school coach, Joe Montagna, telling me, look, uh, after the first practice, he said, you have a chance to, you know, skip college. You can go to any school you want, but you can really skip college. And I was just like, there's no way, you know, and. The next year, uh, Charlie Villanueva came to school. Now, when Charlie came, this is where it took me to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlie was so ready and so talented that, you know, when he came, I couldn't believe some of the things that Charlie could do. And for me, I'm a workaholic. So every time I saw Charlie do something, I was in the gym. You know, I had to have that. You know, Charlie was doing a step back. I'm like, okay, so this is what a step back is, you know, and Charlie was fading away, uh, just so talented. And, you know, me and Charlie were roommate and we would just work out together in the morning. And this is how we helped each other uh, get to the NBA. And I ended up playing 15 years. I think Charlie played 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, you know, we were roommate in high school and we had Royale Ivy, um, who was a bit older than us, but he was kind of leading the way for us. So, you know, and the three of us ended up, uh, in a league. So it's really, it's been an amazing journey. Oh, that's great. That's great. So how did you get to Duke and what were some of the other, other schools where you were considering? Yeah. So by my sophomore year, so when I first came over to the U S uh, I played in a tournament my freshman year, mm-hmm. uh, from my freshman year, I was ranked like, uh, the first time, like 200 and something. And I just knew I was better than that. So, uh, you know, I got a chance to play with the New Jersey Demons AAU team. And when I started playing with them, that's when everyone really started seeing me and started talking about, you know, this kid that goes to Blair Academy, mm-hmm. and, you know, started moving up in the rankings. Uh, by my sophomore year, this is when Duke started recruiting me. Uh, you know, when Coach K, uh, for me, you know, we developed a relationship from earlier on where he actually flew to London and got to meet my, you know, my dad and they became close. Um, so I made my decision to go to Duke uh, my junior year. But, uh, you know, I almost went to Indiana. Mm. Uh, I visited Missouri, uh, Virginia, and 
I visited uh, Fairfield. My brother at the time was at Fairfield, Connecticut. So those were the schools that I became, you know, really close at. But I almost really committed to Indiana. Uh, really? Committed to Duke, yeah. Huh, that's interesting. All right, so talk to me about what you learned from Coach K. I mean, he was only there for a year, but how did he really prepare you for the league? Because you was, um, you know, only 19 years old coming into the league, but you had a maturity about you that everyone always spoke about. Um, as you know, many guys come into the league, you know, you was a seventh pick, but they don't have the maturity, the work ethic to be able to deal with the ups and downs, everything like that. Um, did Coach K really help you prepare to make that jump? No, definitely. I think, you know, the program at Duke, obviously, you don't have to worry about your game. They're going to make you work hard. Uh, they're going to make you, you know, a better player. You're going to make you understand, you know, how, how hard you need to work. Uh, for me, what, what I always tell people with uh, Coach K that uh, if you play for Coach K or if you know Coach K, he's, you know, he has a way of motivating you um, that many people cannot. He has a way of connecting with with players that many people can. It's not so much about the basketball part of it. Obviously, he's a genius when it comes to the basketball part. But Coach K has a way just, you know, making you, you know, kind of feel special or feel that you really want to, you know, play as hard as you can to accomplish greatness. Uh, it's not just about just going out there and running around. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he had a way of just making you care about him and wanting to play hard for him and, and you know, uh, he, he was always reaching out to things that wasn't about basketball, you know, until today, it amazes me how, you know, just good of a human being he is in terms of just the little things, you know, coach K will, he, he's never missed a birthday without a handwritten card. And, you know, I know people could say whatever you want to say that maybe he has somebody who does it or whatever, but it's handwritten. So he has actually to take the time to handwrite it. It's never typed. Uh, or anything and you know just the little things even now when I was in the NBA uh, with my games you know it was a good game here a good game there but most importantly my work off the court uh, is what he's always inspired by and that takes me back to when Coach K1 was recruiting me um, when I was a sophomore when I was a junior you know his thing was you know, when you get older, basketball is not going to be what you're known by. Uh, you're going to make your mark in, you know, how you give back to people or the things that you're trying to highlight or how you try. And, and for me, that always stuck with me until today. We still talk about it. So, you know, that's the one thing that I would say that Duke helped me so much with was to see how, you know, how I got to be prepared for every game or how hard I have to play every night. That's great. That's great. So you're 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 with the Bulls. And so talk to me about the baby bulls, you know, because y'all had a crew. I, I liked y'all team, you know, Ben Gordon, Tyson Chandler, Eddie Kerr. I like that young team that y'all had. I didn't know if Scott Skiles was the right coach for y'all, to be 100% honest. But but, but what, what did you think about that team? Man, it was fun. You know, when we came in, like you said, it was so many of us that uh, obviously we were a young team, so we didn't feel the pressure. Um, we, we felt that it was, uh, we weren't supposed to win. Uh, you know, everybody's talking about baby bulls. So that's like, okay, they got a few more years before they get, you know, better and all that. But when we came in, I remember, um, you know, I had Andres Nocioni as a rookie, mm -hmm. but he is an older rookie. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people, 
You know, I'm just no Sione. If you're his teammate, you love him. If you're not his teammate, you can't stand him. You really couldn't. <laughs> That's very accurate. Yeah. Of him. And, and and he had this mindset of just he played hard, man. He played. And that was my position. And uh, coming in as a 19 year old, he was you know 24 or 25 at the time. He's coming in every day just trying to go at me and you know fouling, playing hard, and you know I hated it at first. Uh, but when we started playing games, I started to like it because nobody was playing as hard as him. Mm. And as a group, uh, uh, the Baby Bulls, we just clicked and just our identity became just play harder than everybody else. It wasn't so much that we knew uh, more than anyone or we were more. I mean, obviously, we at that time, Bulls had a lot of picks that year. So you're coming in with a lot of talent. Mm. But the one thing that we committed to was just playing as hard as we can. And when you didn't play hard, uh, you looked bad. Um, you know, when you have one rookie or two rookies, you can get away with it. You know, some sometimes the vets are not playing as hard. You don't play as hard, so you get away with it. But when you're a young team, man, if, if I don't play hard, Ben Gordon is playing hard, Kirk is playing hard, you know, Noach is playing hard. So every day we just – our identity was just play as hard as you can. You know, uh, we had a great playoff series uh, was with the Wizards with y'all. Uh, you remember that series? Yep. It, it, it was a great series. Like, I really look back at, you know, those games, those were some battles. Um, you know, it, it's amazing how young you guys were. Like, y'all were really young. Yep. And I, I just think, I don't know, like, what what was your relationship with Scott Skiles? Because, okay, so I'll, I'll say this. for From the outside looking in, we were thinking, yeah, he's not doing this right with them. <laughs> that, and we were talking about it. It was like a discussion with us. Yeah. What was the relationship with Scott Skiles? You know, uh, my relationship with him developed uh, over the time. You know, when I first came in, uh, I, I felt like I wanted to do more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I felt that uh, I was being held back a little bit, but so does every player. I think, you know, every, every, <laughs> every person who makes the NBA – you know, it's a few of us that are really, you know, we don't think we're that good. But that's also uh, what makes us, you know, uh, so good. We have a mindset of just thinking we can be more than the opportunity that we are given. Not that you don't appreciate the opportunity, but you just want to do more. Uh, so I felt that, you know, I was being made into a certain player, but I wanted to, you know, I wanted to do more. Like you said, in high school and in, uh, and in college, I was able to just, you know, I was able to make moves. I was able to use the ball dribble, you know, but we had a team where it's Scott Skiles wanted certain guys to handle the ball and wanted certain guys to run the wing and, you know, certain guys to play a certain way. So for me, right away, I just, you know, I convinced myself I have to make the best out of this opportunity, you know, move without the ball, just move as much as I can. But I didn't like the way I was being used. And for a couple of years, myself and Scott Skiles wouldn't see in the same, you know, the same page. And it became an issue until, you know, I had to just let it go and see, you know, how can I be the best player I could be in this system? Mm -hmm. And when I figured it out, it was almost like, okay, this became how I play. And our relationship kind of changed over because for me, every coach that I had, it almost takes me a year or two to figure out, you know, what do they really need or what what can I provide for this team? And that's where, you know, my, my relationship with Scott Skiles became better that way. But there's a lot, 
you know, over the years, it wasn't always as smooth as, you know, it was at the end. It took a lot to get there. So I could see why. You know, I remember your this. I believe this was your rookie year. It might have been your second year. Um, but you were going head to head against Kobe. And I remember it because you had like 18 points in the first quarter. Am yep. I right? 17, yep. 18 points. And then you didn't play the whole second half. Yep. Yeah. I noticed that. Tell, yeah. tell me about that story. Tell, tell me about what happened with that game. That's amazing that you remember that, actually. That's that's one of the, you know, the – I would never forget that. I think, you know, I've, from that game, I became so close with Kobe. Um, so the first the, – the game is about to start, and we get to the center of the, uh, the court. Mm-hmm. And Kobe kind of leans over and kind of nudges me. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll never forget this. And he was just like, you know, I would have been a better freshman than you. Because Kobe always loved Duke. He never went to Duke, but he loved Duke. So he's like, I would have been a better freshman than you. And I'm about to play Kobe Bryant. I, you know, first time I heard about Kobe Bryant, I was playing soccer. So, you know, I've, I've always been a big fan of Kobe. So I'm like, okay, maybe he's joking, maybe he's not. But Kobe had this straight face when he said it. <laughs> You know, there's no smiling, no nothing. Right. For me, right away, and you know how it is, I had to just, okay, I'm going right back at him. I'm not just going to back down. This is basketball. I'm not just going to, you know, fold. And it, it shows your character. So I was like, okay, I'm just forget everything. It's me and him going at each other. And in the first quarter, I just came, you know, everything was going in. You know, I'm catching the ball. I'm shooting. I'm driving. I had uh, 17 points in the first quarter. Um we get to halftime, we get in the locker room, and Scott Skiles is going off on me that I'm not guarding Kobe, I'm not playing defense. And I think what he was trying to do was, at the time I'm young, obviously, but I think he was trying to motivate me to keep going in, in the way that he knows, uh, I believe, uh, so I don't get you know a big head and thinking, okay, here I am, I'm, I got 17 points in the first quarter. But his whole thing was, all you're thinking about is scoring, all you're trying to do is score. Uh, and you're not guarding this guy, whatever, you know. So the second half comes. Um, I start the second half, and he yanks me right to the bench. So I catch an attitude, and the game gets away, and that was it. You know, that that I didn't play in the second half. And, that you know, I ended up, I think, with 19 points um, in a game, and Kobe had maybe 43. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I wasn't, maybe I wasn't guarding Kobe, but listen, every time he scored, I scored. We were good. We were canceling each other. But But that first quarter, though, it was you and him. You going back and forth, and you was really holding your own. I remember that very well. Yeah, you know, and I became, and this is what I was telling you earlier. I think part of that, I really, I always thought when I first came in the league, I can score. But over the years, I think, you know, and you you know this teams do this they they start putting you in a category where you you know you're trying to survive you're trying to be the best you could be but right. you know as a young kid if you're told listen you're our best defender we don't need you to score you just got to defend the best guy every day you start thinking okay you know this is my identity this is what i am and then it slowly you start to lose that you know and that's the one thing when i look back um you know when i look back on my career um uh, you know, I was always a nice person. I was always humble, but I really wish there was a little bit of, you know, just being mean or being, you know, forgive my word, just a little bit more of an asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why I'm saying that is because you have to, 
when I came in, the way I was raised is respect everyone, always be super nice to everyone, which is, is still true. But, mm-hmm. you know, in this league, in this profession, you have to speak up, um, you know, uh, or what you really believe because people will take advantage of that and direct you to what fits them instead of, you know, what's best for you all the time. And I think we're seeing it now that more athletes are speaking up. Mm-hmm. But that's one thing that I look back and, you know, I was just, I never understood, you know, I never really uh, grasped everything of what I can do and I could do for other teams. I really thought, you know, one team that drafted me, I got to give them everything. This is it. I don't know where else I would go. So I did everything right uh, at the time instead of, you know, speaking up of what I don't like or how things should be, you know? You know, it's interesting you brought up the, the topic of speaking up. And, you know, I want to ask you a little bit about your time with the Bulls and, um, you know, I pay attention to a lot uh, when I was playing and I saw the, how can I say this? The Bulls medical staff uh, made some medical mistakes with you. Is that, is that a fair assessment or fair way to say it? A lot, a lot of medical mistakes. Okay. I was trying to be, you know what I mean? But yes, they misdiagnosed you. They did. So the first one um, I remember you, they, they convinced you not to have surgery. Uh, I believe it was on your wrist or your hand. Um, because they wanted to push to go to the playoffs. Now, this happens on every team at some point. I remember uh, Richard Hamilton going off on the whole uh, medical staff who was with the Wizards when they was they didn't tell him about a hamstring pull that he had until we were out of playoff contention. Mm-hmm. And they were just telling him, you know what I mean? And he just went off on everybody. But talk to me about that that process, the, the process of – um, an organization, they're, they're the, the, the doctors, but they're the team doctors. You know what I mean? They're the, the trainers, but they're the team trainers. So it's kind of like any given Sunday movie, yeah. you know, like where they work for them. Going back, would you change anything with that, knowing what you know now? Um, you know, when they told you to put off the surgery, don't do it, play through the pain, or trying to make the playoffs, would, would you make the same decision to listen to them, or would you kind of go a different route where you see players like Kawhi Leonard getting a second opinion, other players going outside of the, the team uh, medical network and, and, you know, seeking other opinions on their actual injury. Yeah, no, there's definitely been a lot of mistakes, man. I, you know, it started off with my rookie year. Uh, my rookie year, I hurt my wrist. Uh, that's, that was my first injury. Mm-hmm. When I hurt my wrist, I, um, I had a torn ligament in my wrist and, I, uh, the Bulls, uh, the Bulls doctors at the time thought that I should fuse my wrist. Um, imagine fusing my wrist where I cannot move my wrist. You know, you're playing a game of basketball. Um, and I went and got other opinions and I did my uh, surgery with Dr. Scott from New York. And she right away just said, listen, you're too young to fuse your wrist. You know, we just need to put a cast over it. Uh, we do the surgery and you will hit it just fine. Just rehab and come back. So I went outside of the Bulls in order to do that at the time. Uh, later on, what the injury you're talking about is I had a fracture on my tibia. Now, I was complaining about my tibia for about a month. Every time I was complaining about my tibia, you know, I was told that just this uh, shin splints, you'll be fine and everything. No and way. I remember and I remember we playing a game against Houston and I jumped. I came down and I really felt a pain shoot up my leg all the way up. 
And I just said, you know what, this can't be. It's just the pain is too much. Uh, so I need to go get an outside opinion. Mm. And I remember we were, uh, we were playing in Miami and I went to see a different doctor and get an MRI and x-rays from a different opinion. And right away, the doctor was like, listen, you need to stop playing right now. You have a fracture on your tibia that can break. Oh, uh, you know, and I was like, what? And he's like, there's a fracture on your tibia. So I went back to the medical staff at the time and I said, there's a misdiagnosed. You guys need to do an MRI. So, you know, like, no, it's not, you know, you're fine. I'm like, no, this doctor said this. So I end up getting an MRI with the Bulls and this became a huge thing. This is right on the playoffs. It, it, it was just blowing out and it became of, um, I was too soft and I was making up uh, an injury. And it was the Bulls, even the Bulls doctor decided to go on the radio to say that I did not have a fracture, that it was a uh, runner's a runner's uh, fracture or something that every runner gets it. Wow. So he comes up and shows all these examples of runner's uh, shins and they have all these fractures and they keep running. And I'm like, listen, I know I have pain. It's not just a line, whatever. So I go outside and I get other opinions. Six doctors. I got opinion of six doctors, including the Bulls doctor. Five mm. out of the six all says that I have a fracture on my tibia and I need to stop. Four of those doctors said I need to put a rod. Only one of them said I need to just let it heal. And I listened to that one doctor. So for about four to six months, every day I was just healing and rehabbing and, you know, just hoping that that doctor was right. And that was really where my career was at that time. And uh, with all that, the doctor was still trying to get me to play in the playoffs, knowing that I have a fracture. So that's that's just one of the stories. And later on, it got worse. Um, yeah, I want to get to that too, though. But that's but that's a it's such a problem in the league. Now it's it's, it's a million times worse than football. In the NFL, that you hear their stories, you're like, oh my gosh, that's that's completely you know you can't even you know, fathom how they operate that way. But I've heard so many stories here, but there should be some type of an outside entity that is not employed by the team and where that medical slash team line doesn't get blurred. And I, that's something that needs to happen. We've seen misdiagnosing for far too long and everybody has a story. Like every player you talk about, they either, it's either happened to them or it's happened to their teammate. And that's, that's too much. So, it, like you mentioned, it did get worse where they misdiagnosed you again. Yeah. And this was serious with uh, meningitis. Yeah. And you had a spinal tap. Yeah. And you had this terrible reaction to it. And you had spinal fluid leaking throughout your body. Talk talk to me about that because this is a this is a major misdiagnosis. This is like medical yeah. malpractice. Like you could have a lawsuit against them. But talk talk to me about what happened with that misdiagnosis? Yeah, um, like you said, man, I, I think, you know, over the years, uh, I think teams are learning. I think people in general are learning. I think in the past, uh, it was crazy to me when I found out that the medical staff or the hospitals were actually paying teams to be the team doctor. So basically they're paying teams to just say, we sponsored the Chicago Bulls or we sponsored the Washington Wizards. We're the official doctors of that team. Right. The team wasn't really going out and saying, okay, we pay all these guys, all these millions, let's get the right doctors and the right staff to, to watch them, you know? And I think now people are learning mm -hmm. and, you know, every player now that I talk to, I always say, you know, you need to have your own doctors. 
at the time when we came in, only a few of us had that. Not all of us had that. And if you look back to the league or where it came from or where it started, players before us went through way worse. Oh, my gosh. So eventually it's getting better. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the whole thing, you know, as, as long as it keeps getting better and us as players, we start understanding what we actually need, uh, you know, and then how to put our team together. But to go back to what you're saying with the spinal tap. So we were in a playoffs against uh, the Brooklyn Nets at the time. And I remember uh, there was a kind of a flu outbreak within the team and we were flying back uh, on a plane and a few guys were sick. And the next day I woke up and there's a couple guys in the team that had the flu mm -hmm. um, and I just wasn't feeling well at all. I came in um, into the training room and they took my temperature. My temperature was, you know, crazy high. Uh, so they said, you know what, you can't practice today. We don't want you around the team. We don't want you to get other guys sick. Uh, we're going to send you to the hospital to go get checkup because your fever is too high. Your temperature is too high. So I went to the hospital, and at the time, the uh, the team doctor was there. So they take my temperature and everything, and they're just alarmed. My fever was so high. So they're like, look, we're so scared that this can be something else. Uh, but I'm kind of like, okay, something else like what? And they're like meningitis, and I'm like, at the time, I'm like, what is meningitis? I don't know. You know I heard of meningitis, but, you know, kind of tell me what's. And they're like, no, this is serious. This can kill you. Uh, meningitis is serious. So I said, okay, uh, what about the other guys in the team? I wasn't the only one who's sick, you know? They're like, no, the, the temperature's not as high, so we're not worried. So I was like, okay. So I waited there. So the doctor comes in, and they're like, listen, because um, your temperature's so high, we're worried about meningitis. We need to give you a spinal tap. It's the first time I've ever heard about a spinal tap. Wow. I'm like, okay, what's a spinal tap? And they kind of downplayed it and they said, okay, just, uh, you know, just to find out, you know, if you have meningitis or not. And, you know, they're like, a lot of people get it, especially pregnant women, they get it, you know, just to know. So I'm just like, okay, so this is a simple procedure. They're like, yeah, you know. So I go in, I get the spinal tap. Mm. Um, when I got the spinal tap, Obviously, for people who don't know the spinal tab, this uh, you know they go from your back, kind of like on your spine, and they take fluid. But that fluid is coming from your brain. You know that's uh, where the fluid is taken to test if you have meningitis. Uh, so after I did that, I, I I'm in I'm in the hospital, and they're like, "Listen, you're fine. Uh, we're gonna do the lab test, whatever. But for now, you're good. You know, you'll be fine for tomorrow." So I went from maybe I might have meningitis to a spinal tap to, we don't know the results yet, but you're okay. But at the time it didn't register to me that I wasn't, they didn't even test what they took out yet, but they told me I'm okay. Right. They said, you know, you're fine to go home. You know, you can play tomorrow. Wow. Like, so I'm like, okay, we have a game tomorrow against, you know, the Nets in the playoffs. So what did I do? I went from the hospital and I drove straight to the court because I wanted to go do my reps and get my shots up and just be ready for tomorrow. So I go on a court, I get my reps up. I have this, you know, crazy headache, but I'm just like, you know, it's okay. It's going to be over by tomorrow if I sleep. So I go to bed, I sleep. I, and, you know, this is where it all started going downhill. Like I woke up and I wasn't, I just didn't feel right. You know, I just felt so weak and, you know, this like just a puddle of water in my bed. And I'm thinking, okay, you know what? Maybe I'm just sweating or what? I don't know. Mm -hmm. so I go to the training room and 
out of nowhere, I can't see right. You know, I'm just seeing like lights or my, just my brain feels like it's hitting my skull, you know? And right away I told my trainer and at the time my trainer Fred was like, listen, something ain't right. So they sent me back to the hospital. I go to the hospital. As soon as I go to the hospital, I just, you know, I wasn't feeling right. So I'm telling the doctor and he's like, no, it's fine. You're okay. You know, do we wait for the test? You don't have meningitis. We tested it. So now we're all just worried about the meningitis, but I did a spinal tap and went on the court. Nobody's thinking that. Right. So, so he's like, no, you're fine. So I miss shoot around. So I go to the arena. I go to the arena. I go to the locker room. I change. I'm ready to play the game. L- literally, as I'm ready to play the game, I get up to try to play the game and I'm just collapse. I just collapse. You know, right. I, had, I had nothing. I had like, so I leave this the arena in a wheelchair uh, I get pushed out in a wheelchair straight to the hospital. Now I go to the hospital and I called a friend of mine and my friend is a doctor. So I explained to him and he comes right down to the hospital uh, the next morning. He comes right down to the hospital and he's like, yo, what, what is going on? And I said, they did a spinal tap. And he's like, what? I said, they did a spinal tap. And he's like, okay, what's your symptoms? And I'm telling him and he goes, you're still leaking fluid. You need your spinal tap to be closed because, you know, what did you do yesterday? And I said, I went to the court. I went to work out. And he's like, no, when you get a spinal tap, you're supposed to not move for at least 45 hours or so. So all this I'm finding out. I didn't know anything about it. So we called the doctor uh, and the doctor's not there. Uh, the team doctor left town. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm like, OK, so what's happening now? So she gets somebody else. And this person is, you know, my my friend is telling them, look you messed up here. We need to correct this. So we need to give him another surgery to take his fluid to close the spinal tap. So they go in to try to take my blood. And I can't remember whether it was, you know, a red blood cells or what, but I just had something wasn't right with my red blood cells. So they're like, okay, we can't perform the surgery. I got to wait like four or five days. So those four or five days, I'm basically laying in bed. When I tell you, Eton, like I, I really, I never went through anything like that. And My side effects from it was so bad that I think, you know, within seven days or eight days being in the hospital, you know, eventually I did uh, the second procedure Mm -hmm. uh, to start to feel better. But this is where the MVPA and everyone came in and it was, you know, do I sue? Do I do this? But it was sue, get money and never play basketball or let it go and play basketball. And at the time, being with the organization for as long as I've been, you know, I, you know, I just said, you know what, I just, I want to play the game. I want to play basketball. So I come back the next year, uh, probably my best year. I was an all-star that year. The next year I'm trying to be an all-star again. I'm averaging 20. And as soon as I proved that I could play, I was traded. Uh, wow. <laughs> I was, I was gone. And at that time, obviously um, I can't sue because I showed that I could play the game. So it's, you know, it's this move on. So after 10 years, and, you know, for me, uh, you know, I'll never forget my 10 years in Chicago and everything that I did with the organization. And I'm thankful. And, you know, there's so many people in that organization that I'm still friends with till today. Right. But there's a lot of people there that made so many mistakes that I will never forget about. But, you know, but that's how it goes, man. And that's really, you know, that's how it went. But it you know, it never, it would never take away from my years there. But that's an incident that, you know, I, I talk about it because I never want anyone else to go through it, you know. 
Wow, that's amazing. And so you was left with the option of either suing and never playing again or just letting it go and continuing playing? That was... Yeah, and I just, I really believe, and, you know, as we go on, you'll see why it really, God, God has blessed me. Because for me, honestly, I really wanted to play. Uh, I, I never wanted to just be the guy who sued and got money or whatever. But uh, it's funny how that works, because you'll see as we keep right. talking, right. Know, God, God, God had a plan for that to come back. But, you know, so I, I chose to play. I wanted to play. Uh, and I really the competitive, you know, part of me just felt that I had so much more to prove going forward. So, I mean, and since you, you know, alluded to it, we'll, we'll, we'll skip to it. You know, you, you, you know, you went to Miami and you went to Cleveland, but then you went to the Lakers and the Lakers, um, you know, it was in 2016 and you signed a four year, $72 million contract. And then they didn't really play you. It was weird. It wasn't like you was hurt. I mean, you could correct. I'm, I'm telling you a story like I do. You tell me, was you hurt or was it like they just didn't play you? You looked fine all before. It's like you was just sitting there just ready to go and you you had a you had a good attitude. They didn't try to say that you were a problem. Everybody spoke very highly of you. They just didn't play you. So everybody was like, well, y'all just signed up to this big contract. Why wouldn't you play him? What was, tell me what was going on? I think those, you know, the people that were there, they will always know. You know, like, I swear to you, uh, Etan, I worked so hard there, but uh, it just didn't work out. I, I, you know, when I first got there, the idea was, you know, I'm a bit older now, not even that old at the time, but, you know, we have a young team. We need you to play. We need to get to the playoffs. Uh, we need to get these guys right. We need to do this. And I said, okay, you know, I was convinced. But just to set the story straight, because, you know, everyone thinks I just went for the money. I still, you know, I had the same offer from Utah and I had almost as close an offer from the Wizards. And I took the Lakers because I felt that what they pitched to me sounded better than what everyone else pitched to me at the time. Um, so I wanted to, to go there and be a part of it. Um, as I got there right away, I knew we had a young team and I was OK with that. I said, you know what, I'll play my role until we get going. And the, the pitch was, you know what? We're going to be better each year. Um, I knew that they wanted to move some pieces, some young pieces, but they had to showcase them. So the first year, what happened was we moved from trying to make the playoffs to we are developing. We are a young team. And I sat down with the organization and they uh, halfway uh, while, you know, during the season, a new uh, GM came in and everything. So they sat me down and said, look, uh, we just, we're going to go young. We're going to play the young guys. Uh, you know, we need your leadership. We need you to mentor them. And, you know, next year we have a chance, you know, we're not going to have a chance this year, but we want to really be competitive and get these guys to catch up to speed. And I was like, all right, cool. You know, never missed a practice, never missed anything. Um, the next year that summer, I worked as hard as I can. Uh, you know, and I came in, I was in shape. I was ready to play. Um, and I thought that, you know, we're going to get going, you know, we're going to get to playing. Um, as you remember, I played the first game, the first game of the season, right? I played maybe 15 minutes, 14 minutes. I had two points. I got yanked out. I didn't play. So it was fine. It was the first game. Right away from the first game, decision was made that we're going to play the young guys again. You know, so I was like, okay, so what's the situation here? So they're like, no, nah, we're going to play the young guys, you know, 
just we're going to try to trade you this and this. So, okay. So how are you going to trade all this money without discipline? Like everyone thinks I'm hurt or something happened or whatever. I can't, I can't showcase nothing. Right. You know? And so it's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to try to move you, try to move me, try to move me. You know, I don't blame anyone. Why? Why? Even if I'm a GM, I'm not moving for someone who hasn't played with right. all the money. Why would I? You know, so the strategy wasn't right. Uh, but I always felt, OK, if I'm in the organization and this is what I was telling you earlier, I had a mindset of just be respectful, do the right thing and get on. You know, the people that are close to you is who matters and who needs to know. Right. I didn't care about anything else outside. Um, so the strategy wasn't right. So just kept going. Couldn't move me. Couldn't move me. They, they came a time in a season where they were like, OK, we want you to play. So I said, OK. You know, no problem. I'm ready to play. So they said, okay, we're going to just put you in, you know, you got to jump in with the team, get more reps and everything. So I started jumping in, getting more reps, getting ready and everything. Then I was called upstairs. Uh, you know, the coach wanted me to play, but the the direction wasn't going that way because I was going to be playing and they wanted these young guys to play. So then again, the decision was made right there after three weeks of training and working out that, okay, you're not going to play. No. So at that time, you know, at that point, I just got up. I said, you know what, like, I, you guys just let me know. I'm not going to skip no practice, no nothing. All year again, I went the whole year. The whole year I was in the locker room. I worked out. I never missed a practice. I, I trained everything, right? And then it started becoming obvious to everyone, and this is a big organization. So what everyone started focusing on was, oh, he's getting paid all this money, uh, and he's just sitting there, whatever. And you know, as an athlete and somebody who's crafted their skill for so many years, mm -hmm. you know, th there comes a time where you're just like, okay, this is the image that you're, you know, portraying me as now. That mm -hmm. you know, I'm just this guy. I've never been this guy, but I'm like, okay, you know what? It is what it is. I'm just going to do what's right. So then came the summer. And that's the year, actually, when, you know, they moved some pieces and LeBron came on the team. You know, when LeBron came on the team at that time, I spoke to whoever was in charge at the time. Um, and I said, look, I just don't trust you guys. You know, so let's make something happen here. I just don't trust you guys. So they're like, OK, what's the best way to make something happen? And I said, let's, you know, Let's uh, come to terms with some, you know, let's, I don't care if I have to leave money behind. And everybody's talking about, you know, the money that I'm making. I gave a lot of money back to get out of from LA. You know, a lot of other people would have just said, nah, F that, you know, I'm going to stay around. I don't care what, whatever. And, and, you know, people could post whatever they want to post, but the Lakers were not posting how much I gave them back. But it's, I'm always going to be the guy who, just took the money, but I could have been somewhere else with the same money playing. You know, right. I made a decision to go there and I never said I don't want to play. They made that decision. You know, even even if you don't like the way I play or even if I'm struggling, there's no way I wasn't good enough to play in that team. Right. There's no way, you know, when I showed it in practice, I showed it every day. It's a decision that you made that you didn't want me to play. You know, and there's a lot of other teams in the league that I could have been playing for. So... You know, so that's really the situation with that, and that's how it went down. Do you think that they put the narrative out there that, the you know, because sometimes things, I want to say, leak, you know what I mean? But they're, they're, they're purposely placed, and narratives were out there, but they could have easily 
cleared it all up. I mean, I thought the Lakers organization could have clean, you know, cleared up the the you know the false narratives about that you didn't want to play, that you was injured, that you you know was sitting down, that you didn't. All they could have easily cleared that up, but they never did. Did you ever question why they never told exactly what happened while it was while you was in the middle of it happening? I don't think they wanted to. Uh, one, I think they uh, everybody was trying to protect themselves. Um, I think you know as a GM. Uh, you you don't want to explain why you're not playing him, uh, you know. So it's easier to just okay, whatever you want to put out there, whatever people think. Um, and then you know, as a coach, you're caught in. Oh, we want to go young. Uh, you just say, you know what? Now nah, you know. Right now, we focus on the young guys. We want to play the young guys. We got to give them minutes. So there's always an excuse and an outlet. Um, but I I think you know the, what's happening is with social media. Mm-hmm. And you see it all the time, you know, people who really, if you're about the people or if you really care about individuals or even athletes or whoever, or you've cared, or you just on the right side, I like to say the right side of history. Mm-hmm. I think you always stand with people that are actually, that you know are trying to do the right thing or you what you think is the right thing. I think what happens now, people are just so quick never to question their teams. Right. And the, the thing with teams is teams make so much money that for me, for any any person, as it should, like, you know, the rest of the world, the money that I am be, I'm being given is crazy. It sounds, you know, it's a lot of money uh, to these organizations. That's nothing. You know, and people need to understand that it's just, you know, just play it out. They'll go. And people complain about, you know, athletes. um taking off a day or doing this, they're getting paid all this money while they're taking off a day. But fans never actually question teams that tank for a year while your money is being used. But at the end of the day, the owner can tank for a year and they still get paid. But nobody really says anything about, you know, we just paid tickets all this when we're losing just to get a pick. But you don't question all that money, all that billions that the teams are making or the owner are making when they're having a bad season also, you know, it's always the players and it's the players fault. So you have to come, you know, you have to be okay with that and you have to move on. But Itad, if you ask me, honestly, it's, it's, it was such a blessing that the way it went. And I try to explain to people everything that I'm doing off the court, mm-hmm. really a result of everything that I was going through on the court, you know, and you know how it is like, we, we give it so much and playing and, the you know, the pressure and, you know, wanting to perform. You know, they told me I wasn't playing, so I just focused on my – I focused on my business. I mean, I focused on other things that I got. I focused on my foundation. Mm-hmm. And I really think that was God's way of just telling me that, you know, you got so many other things going on for you. You know, you can't just dwell and stress on one thing, you know. may Take that opportunity and make something else out of it. And that's really – you know, what allowed me to focus on other things. And I mean, you did an amazing job with it. You know, I mean, people don't, people, a lot of people will be hearing this and haven't heard you tell this story this way um, ever. Um, they didn't, they don't know this story. They look at, okay, oh, Luau Dang is still getting paid from the Lakers. How's that possible? And they tell that story or they say, you know, they're like, oh, he swindled them. How's he still good? And I was like, yeah, I'm sure there's more to the story than that. And mm-hmm. that's why it's good that, you know, now you're, you're telling this because it, it, it shapes people's perception of athletes when they're only told one story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, everything that so many guys, you know, from all your teams that you've played on 
They talk about you in such glowing, you know, descriptions, like you're this great teammate and you're, you know, you come work hard and you do ever this and you help everybody out. Joe King Noah said he felt like it, he lost a brother when you when you left, we got traded from the Bulls. Like the way that guys are talking about you, they wouldn't talk about you like that if you were someone who that was accurate of the media depiction of you, somebody who just laid down, didn't want to play anymore, you know, got some money. You know, it's completely different. So without even knowing all the details, I knew that there was more to the story. Okay. You know, so I'm glad that you that you told this. Um, I want to talk about the things that you are doing off the court now, since you alluded to it. And you're doing so much amazing things. Um, let's start off with, you know, you were the, the, the president of South Sudan um, Basketball Federation. Um, talk to me about what that is and everything that that entails. Yeah, man, it's just uh, full circle. You know, I, I really believe in uh, doing everything I can uh, to just, you know, just put South Sudan at the light. I, I, you know, I struggled a lot with growing up. It really bothered me that the image or anything that people knew about my country was just civil war. Um, mm -hmm. I couldn't even avoid it telling my story without saying that, I was a refugee and I fled because of the war. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really wanted to do something to change that. And basketball, it's something that is the number one sport uh, in South Sudan. And we have, you know, our diaspora and everybody around the world, we just, you know, gear towards basketball and we're, we're taught by nature. So when I retired, um, right away, I wanted to be involved with basketball in South Sudan, you know, and that was time for the elections for to be the president of the federation. So I put my name in and, and I won and I became the president. And since, you know, we've been using basketball um, to really, you know, show the other side of South Sudan. We're trying to bring unity uh, through the game of, uh, of basketball. You know, we went from uh, being ranked 180 something in the world or 50, 50th in, in Africa, and we just finished Afro Basket, and now we're ranked in the top seven um, mm -hmm. in Africa. Just in two years, uh, we were able to put together our first women team ever. Mm -hmm. uh, imagine all these years, 2021, and we just had our first women team ever. We just started the other day, our first women league um, in, in, uh, in South Sudan, and this is 2021. So those are the things that, you know, I want to keep on, you know, putting out there for people to see and, you know, create opportunities for people back home and also for the rest of the world to see that South Sudan has a lot more to offer uh, besides just, you know, every time South Sudan civil war, you know, we want to talk about South Sudan. We went to Afro basket and look what we did. South Sudan coming together, uh, being the youngest nation in the world. So that's, you know, some of the stuff that I'm focused on now. Um, you know, could have easily just retired and jumped on a team as a coach or jumped in a front office, which, you know, maybe someday, but right away, I really wanted to, you know, as soon as I retired, I wanted to connect with back, uh, with back home and I'm spending a lot of time back home now. No, you're doing an amazing work. Um, talk to me about a uh, D3 N9. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's so important. Um, you know, a lot of the people in the States, still don't have an accurate portrayal in their mind of what Africa looks like and the diversity and how each country is completely different. And you have, you know, I, I took a trip to, to Kenya with the uh, NBPA and, um, you know, with Billy Hunter and Metta World Peace came with us, Theo Ratliff, it was a beautiful trip. And it was amazing the questions that I was getting 
you know, when I came back. And I'm like, wow, y'all, let me show you some pictures of what Africa looks like. You know what I mean? Because y'all have in your mind what you're shown by American TV. And that's not what it is. It looks like any other city. It looks like any other town, any other gated community will pool in the back. And then it has some parts that aren't good. You know what I mean? Like every other city. But but talk about what you do with um, D3 and 9 uh, with real estate and the, the, the affordable housing, the condos, the everything. You're really doing a lot in the real estate market. Uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, so D3 and 9 has two parts to it. So... I'll take you through the U.S. part. So in, here in the U.S., obviously, we do a lot of real estate. Um, we started with, we have a project actually right now in New York, uh, which is uh, 24, uh, 24 apartment units um, in Harrison, New York. Uh, we did a few stuff in Hampton, but we also invested in uh, South Side of Chicago. Okay. Uh, and um, I work with, I, I think you might know the name, David Gross. And uh, in L.A., in Crenshaw, we have Vector 90 uh, on our own. So, you know, it's very, um, you know, when it comes to focusing on real estate in the U.S., it's more of, you know, um, we, we want to be able to be in the inner city uh, communities, but also, you know, uh, develop our portfolio throughout the U.S. And also we in the Bahamas uh, and across in the U.K., Okay. Uh, that's when it comes to that real estate on this side of the world, on the Western side. Uh, in Africa, I remember in 2010, <clears throat> I went back to Africa um, and I was driving around and honestly, I see everybody building, but I, you know, I see a bunch of buildings not finished. I see how people were building. And uh, in the same trip, I went to the UK and I saw this company called Elcon. Elcon is a prefab uh, company that builds uh, L-shaped walls. Mm -hmm. uh, use the modern technology in a factory where everything is punched in in a computer. And instead of building bricks, you build walls. Mm -hmm. So right away, my mind came into, this is what I need in Africa. So I teamed up with Elcon and I bought the company uh, and I took uh, Elcon uh, to Africa. And this is where we're building affordable homes in Africa. So when I got to Africa, I realized that in order to, to, to get a mortgage or just to be able to, to get a loan from a bank, in Africa, it's 18 to 21 percent. Yeah, and that's done on purpose. Um, and why I say that is because it's very difficult for individual to actually own a home in Africa. Um, you know, unless you flat out buy it with your own money. But, in, you know, to take out a mortgage, the banks do not want to help you. Now, if you come from outside uh, and you have a bank account and you have all this stuff, you know, now it's easier for you to, to get a mortgage from the bank. Mm -hmm. So this is something that bothered me and I didn't know how to change it. So we taking the route uh, with our prefab to be able to make affordable homes. So for example, in Uganda, where we are at right now, mm -hmm. in Uganda, you're able to two bedrooms, uh, a guest bathroom, a kitchen and a living room. Uh, we, we wanna be able to get you to buy that for 40,000, um, you know, and we'll work with you with the banks uh, to be able to get a loan or uh, for a bank to take a percentage of your salary uh, from your job. So just being creative in ways. So my my thing is when it comes to within Africa, I'm trying to change the market of what owning a home is. 
you know, what is affordable home? How can I work with the government for government housing? Mm. And this is what a lot of governments want to do. They've been trying to crack down. How do we do that? So that's really what I'm working on over there when it comes to the construction company that I have over there. And I think as we keep on moving forward, I think a lot more people will return to Africa. I really do. Africa is the future. And like you said, I think with technology today, uh, I mean, I'm in Miami right now, but I could have been uh, in Kenya, Nairobi, or in South Sudan, Juba, and just talking to you the same way, you know, just the time difference. But with technology today, you can't really, you know, you, you can be in Africa and still connect with the rest of the world. We didn't have that before, uh, you know, and there's more flights in and out. So I think the world is becoming closer um, and it's easier to get from A to B. So I really believe that with Africa being the youngest continent, uh, you get opportunities in Africa that you don't get here. You know, I'm able I'm able to go to Uganda and meet with individuals that can actually make things happen. And it's very hard for me to do that in the Western world. So, you know, when it comes to business, I really advise people to look into Africa uh, and, and to really talk with individuals to understand how it works in Africa, because there's a lot of opportunities there uh, that, you know, uh, that can be taken advantage of and you can make a difference while you're doing it. That's great. That's great. You're doing such an amazing work. Um, and I want to ask you about um, NBA Africa. I saw um, Junior Bridgman, Grant Hill, Joakim Noah, um, you know, Kemi Mutombo. They're all involved in it. And um, President Obama is involved in it somehow. Talk to me about NBA Africa and um, everything that you're doing with that. Yeah, NBA Africa. So I worked with Amadou, Amadou Falls for years. Um, He's a mentor of mine, a very good friend. Great guy. Yeah, great guy. And for years, we were doing camps in Africa every year. Before Basketball Without Borders, Amadou, myself, Masai, we were going to different countries and just, you know, uh, doing camps. And from that, we really believe that the future uh, of basketball in Africa is, is you know, it's, it's really high. But, you know, we wanted to show the rest of the world that Africa has potential in this game. And this is where Basketball Without Borders started. Uh, Joel Embiid, uh, 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 Siakam, uh, Gorgi Dang, all these guys came from there. Um, and as we kept moving forward, we realized that, you know, there's an opportunity to have a league. And this is what I was saying earlier with how small the world is today. Mm -hmm. you know, easier to get from A to B. So this league is new, Bow. Uh, Basketball Africa League. Uh, and as of right now, there's 12 teams, which is going to move to 16. It's going to move to 22, uh, eventually up to 30, just like the, the NBA. Um, so the, you know, the potential of it is there. But what's what, what I really like about it the most is when they start focusing on the youth programs and youth development. You know, uh, not only you're introducing the games and the opportunity, but if every team can actually have a youth program where, you know, a lot of kids don't feel that they have to uh, get out of Africa in, in order to be able to play at a facilities where they can, you know, enhance their skills. Because a lot of times facilities, a lot of these kids are leaving because they're either playing outdoor or there's nowhere to play. Right. If we start youth programs with all these teams, uh, and build more facilities, this is where we're going to see, you know, the change in the game uh, yeah, and, and the growth of the game in Africa. As of right now, most of our players or most of our kids have to go outside of Africa in order to have an opportunity. We've yet to have 
uh, a kid that, you know, born and raised in Africa and came straight from Africa to the league. But Europeans do have that. You have players in Europe that grew up in Europe, and that's because they have the facilities. We don't have the facilities. So just like myself, at the age of 14 or 16 or 13, whatever, before I reach the college, I have to come over here to the U.S., uh, to develop my skills and then get go to college and you know furthermore develop my skills, but it's very difficult to do it in Africa right now until we have the facilities. Wow, wow. Well, you're like I said, you're doing amazing work, and I just want to tell you, like, much respect to you. Like, honestly, you know, thank you. People know, um, and I'm glad people watching this interview will know a little bit more of what actually happened, a little bit more of your journey, and have a little bit more appreciation. For you and this is the one thing you know now with social media with you know former players having um you know podcasts and things like that i feel that now we have the opportunity to present a better picture of athletes to the public um before they only knew what they read in newspapers exactly. and a lot of times that's what the team wanted them to read in newspapers you don't really know a person but and they, don't like, and they don't like it, by the way. They don't like that you have a platform to be Oh, able. right. Definitely not. Especially if you know how to speak and what to say. They, <laughs> they don't like that. They don't like it at all. But things are changing. And the way young guys are using their platforms now, I think I think it's great. But I just want to tell you much respect to you uh, with everything you're doing. I'm asking one more question. Yeah. Um, you know, you went back to Chicago your final year and you retired in Chicago. And it was important for you to go back to Chicago. Um, everything that you went through there medically, um, you know, but you was there for an entire decade. Um, talk, to about, talk about why that was so important for you to go back to Chicago. Yeah, no, it was one of the best things I've ever done. Um, I, I think for me, you know, you can't get caught up in mistakes that were made. I, you know, like uh, I would never sugarcoated that a lot of things weren't done right. Uh, but, you know, I was there for 10 years. I gave that organization a lot. Um, you know, I got a lot out of the game of basketball from that organization. I think the fans, uh, I would never, ever go anywhere else um, in the world right now, uh, you know, besides South Sudan and get as much love, um, uh, you know, as I do in, in Chicago. Um, you know, a lot of fans, really, their kids grew up watching me. Um, you know, so for me, it felt right that, you know, when I came into Chicago, I never knew that God's plan was for me to be there 10 years. Um, I always tell people, you know, I look back, I keep it quiet, but you know, when I retired and I'm seeing the numbers and I'm, you know, uh, fourth in scoring and fifth in rebounding and, uh, and this and that, I, I really never knew. And people thought that, you know, that was crazy, but honestly, I just played, I, I didn't know that. I had all these numbers or, you know, now that I look back and I'm like 15 years, uh, 900 games, I never came to the league thinking that that was the direction, you know? So when I look back and, you know, and when my family looks back and when people look back, you always going to remember Chicago Bulls. You're not going to remember the Lakers, uh, you know, or you're not going to remember the Miami Heat as much as, you know, I enjoyed every minute. Miami, by the way, Miami Heat, it was a great organization. And right. You know, for me, I felt great. Uh, now I live in Miami, mm. um, you know, but when you look back, even now, you know, every time I see a Chicago, someone wearing Chicago Bulls, 
uh, when I'm traveling, I just smile, you know, because I gave so much to that organization. And I don't see that with any other team. I see other jerseys and, I, you know, I, I played for them. But with Chicago, is different. And also when I meet people from Chicago, because I was there, you know, it's, it's I spend most of it's Chicago is the number one place that I spend the most time in, mm-hmm. by the way, which is crazy. As much as I've been everywhere in the world, mm-hmm. I've never lived anywhere more than five years in Chicago right. for 10 years. Right. So, you know, so I feel that connection. So really, honestly, that's, uh, you know, I, I called the Bulls and I just said I just wanted a one day contract. Uh, and I wanted to retire. Now when uh, people ask me, I say I played 15 years and I retired as a bull. I, I feel good when I say that. That's great. You know, and they this season, they're looking good. This new season, I mean, with Zach Levine and DeRozan and, yeah. you know, Lonzo Ball, they, they look like they're primed to have a good season. Yeah, they are. They are. I think it's going to be a good season this year. Uh, I, I like how they're even playing. I like the style of playing, so. Yeah, it's looking good. It's looking good. Well, listen, Luau, I appreciate you coming on the show. We're de- going to definitely stay in touch because I want to I want to join you in some of the projects that you're doing, um, you know, and reading about it is is one thing. But now hearing you talk about it, it it's, it's amazing. You're really doing a lot of amazing work. So, again, I just want to say much respect to you. Keep doing what you're doing. Stay safe. And uh, thanks again for coming on The Rematch. No, definitely. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Rematch. You can find more episodes on basketballnews.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can also find my articles on basketballnews.com, along with exclusive content from Kenyon Martin, James Posey, and more. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Thomas 36 Let me know what you thought of this episode and who you'd like to see as a guest. I would love your feedback.